this is Penny Johnson, and you're listening to From Stage to Page, an audiobook podcast devoted to the forgotten stories and memoirs of female performing artists from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. In this episode, we begin with Geraldine Farr, The Story of an American Singer, written by Geraldine Farr and published in 1916 by Houghton Mifflin Company. A Dedication In offering these little sketches of some of the interesting events that have helped shape a career now fairly familiar to the general public, it has not been my intention to weary the indulgent reader with a lengthy dissertation of literary pretension or tiresome data resulting from the obvious and oft-occurring I. From out the storehouse of memory, Impressions crystallized into form without regard to time or place, and it was more than a passing pleasure to jot them down at haphazard. In the quiet of my library, on the flying train, or again beneath the witchery of California skies, I scribbled as the mood prompted, and I would converse with an interested and congenial listener. It is not, perhaps, a New England characteristic to expand in affectionate eulogy for the satisfaction of a curious public, but the threads of these recollections are so closely interwoven with maternal love and devotion that this volume would be incomplete without its rightful dedication to my mother. G. F. Geraldine Farr, The Story of an American Singer Chapter 1. My Life as a Child I believe that a benevolent fate has had watch over me. Some have called it luck. Some have spoken of the hard work and the many years of study. Others have cited my career as an instance of American pluck and perseverance. But deep down in my heart, I feel much has been directed by fate. This God-sent gift of song was bestowed upon me for some purpose. I know not what. It may fail me tomorrow, tonight, at any moment. Something may mar the delicate instrument, and then all the perseverance, pluck, study, and luck in the world will not restore it to me. If early in life I dimly sensed this insecurity, yet always have I gone onward and onward, eager for that which fate had in store for me, and accepting gladly those rewards and opportunities, which in the course of my career have been popularly referred to as Farrer's Luck. Yet do not think that I waited in idleness to see what fate would bring. From the days of my earliest recollection, I have labored unceasingly to attain the goal which I believed and hope destiny had marked out for me. My mother tells me that before I was five I had already shown strong musical tendencies. By the time I was ten I had visions of studying abroad. At the age of twelve I had heard the music of almost the entire grand opera repertoire. By the time I was sixteen I was studying in Paris. 
My earliest memories take me back to my hometown, Melrose, Massachusetts, a small but very attractive city not far from Boston. I can recall a large room with an open fireplace and flames flashing from a log fire into which I spent many hours gazing, trying to conjure up strange and fanciful shapes and figures. From the fireplace, so my mother tells me, I would stroll to the great old-fashioned square piano in the corner and, standing on tiptoe, would strum upon the keys. I suppose I was two or three years old at the time, yet it seems to me that I was striving to give expression musically to the strange shapes and figures suggested by the fire and by my vivid imagination. Hereditary influences must have helped to shape my musical career. My mother and father both sang in the First Universalist Church of Melrose. Mother's father, Dennis Barnes of Melrose, had been a musician and had organized a little orchestra which played on special occasions. He gave violin lessons and composed and there was a tradition that in his boyhood days he learned to play the violin from an Italian fiddler and afterward constructed his own instrument, pulling hairs from the tail of an old white horse to make the bow. My father, Sidney D. Farrer, owned a store in Melrose when I was born. In the summertime he played baseball with a local amateur team with such success that when I was two years old, he was engaged by the Philadelphia National League Baseball Club as first baseman. He was a professional ball player with the Philadelphia team for several years, yet during the winters he was always in Melrose looking after business. Both he and my mother were very fond of music, singing every week in the church quartet and sometimes at concerts. The house in which I was born is still standing a large, old-fashioned building on Mount Vernon Street, Melrose, which my father rented from the Houghton Estate. It is next door to the Blake House, a well-known local landmark. Most of my early life was spent in this house, although subsequently we moved twice to occupy other houses in the neighborhood. My mother says that I was a happy baby, crooning and humming to myself, singing when other babies usually cry. She says that the familiar airs of the barrel organs, which were played in the street every day, were all added to my repertoire in due time, correct as to melody, although I was too young to enunciate properly. My mother did not think it out of the ordinary for her baby to be so musically inclined, young as I was. I was her first and only child. When I was three years old, I sang in my first church concert. My childish voice rose up bravely, and my mother distinctly remembers that I had perfect self-possession and never showed the slightest sign of stage fright. When my song was finished and the kind applause had subsided, I stepped to the edge of the platform and spoke to her down in the front row. "'Did I do it well, Mama?" I asked, not at all disconcerted while everyone laughed. I cannot remember the time when I did not intend to sing and act. As soon as I was a little older, it was decided that I should take piano lessons. 
but at once I made strenuous objection to the necessary restraint, an objection which in after years manifested itself in much that I attempted. I could not force myself to study according to rule or tradition. I wanted to try out things my own way, according to impulse, just when and how the spirit within me moved. I could not drudge at scales, and therefore found the lessons irksome. I preferred to improvise upon the piano, and I had a strange fondness for playing everything upon the black keys. "'Why do you use only the black keys?' my mother asked me once. "'Because the white keys seem like angels, and the black keys like devils, and I like devils best,' I replied." It was the soft half-tones of the black keys which fascinated me, and to this day I prefer their sensuous harmony to that of the more brilliant angels. My mother offered me a tricycle, one of those weird three-wheeled vehicles in vogue at the time, if I would learn my piano lessons according to rule. But I had all too little patience, and my father gave me the tricycle anyhow, as well as a pony later. These were some of my few amusements. In fact, I cared little for child's play at any time in my early youth, and nothing for outdoor sports. I spent most of my time with books and music, or playing with animals. Among my animal friends was a large Newfoundland dog. One day my mother came into the backyard and found me trying to make him act as a horse, attached by a rough harness to an improvised plow I had made of wood to dig up the back garden. I loved dogs, and once my mother had me photographed seated on a large painted wooden dog. Another childish amusement was to put fantastic costumes on the cats and pretend that they were actors or actresses. In time they were added to the cats and dog a chameleon, a pair of small alligators, guinea pigs, rabbits, a bullfinch, and a robin with a broken wing. I was passionately fond of flowers as well, and my own small garden was a source of pride and pleasure. The world of make-believe was becoming very real to me by this time. I dramatized everything. I had the utmost confidence in my choice to become a great singer, for at all times I was busy with music, either alone or with my mother. It did not occur to me that I could possibly fail in achieving my object, and yet I was so sincere and felt so impelled to try to touch the stars that I do not believe it could be called conceit. Young as I was, I felt that with my song I could soar to another world and revel in poetry and music. You've been listening to From Stage to Page, an audiobook podcast devoted to the forgotten stories and memoirs of female performing artists from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. If you like what you hear and want to support my creative endeavors, then simply go to ko-fi.com/pennyjohnson and you can buy me a lemonade. That's ko-fi.com/ Penny Johnson. Thanks for your support.